This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Come with us tonight to the Solar Energy Conference at Jeff's Shed. The convention centre was full of solar salespeople. I saw a video from China with the thousands of solar panels set out along a series of hills, panels as far as the eye could see, and farmers planting small crops in between with chickens pecking around in a very prosperous manner. The people we'll meet tonight are putting their minds to policy matters, removing the roadblocks to the quick rollout of gigawatts of solar power. It's not just the coal and gas industry that are standing in the way, or going quietly bankrupt. It's the national energy market too. They're obliged to provide us safe electricity, but now, in the light of Paris, they need to increasingly provide energy without carbon emissions. So you will hear a lot about the NEM, that's the National Energy Market. ARENA is another hot topic. It's an agency that provides grants for research and development of projects, renewable energy projects. And the present government has gutted its funding to the tune of $1.3 billion. We'll hear from John Hewson, Fiona O'Hare, John Grimes, Wayne Smith and Christine Milne on how important it is that we vote for a government that is genuinely behind the transition to renewable energy. One of the people I most enjoyed talking to was a young man from the UK called Daniel Laws. He told me about his solar energy diverter. He'd received great encouragement in the UK and he tells us the process, actually the research and development process by which he got this thing to manufacturing and now he's going to be exporting these to Australia. I really found it interesting and I hope you listened. It's halfway through the program but Daniel Laws, he's someone I think a lot of people will be interesting because it's not expensive, his thing, much cheaper than a Tesla battery. But first we'll go to John Hewson. He's the former Liberal leader and now he's ANU professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy. John, you're the only person who mentioned climate action. Everybody is here for technical reasons. It really is a solar conference and all these small business people are all here with their ex- uh, things on exhibit, their products. But I'd like to start with the fact that only 2% of Australia's energy comes from solar. Is this the best we can do? Well, I think we can probably do a lot better. Um, One of the reasons has been, of course, very bad government policy over many years under politicians of both sides. 
playing short-term politics, scoring points on each other, rather than recognising that uh, the renewable energy sector has got enormous growth potential, real jobs and real growth, real investment. Uh, and um, Australia has the advantage of being having abundant supplies of sun and wind. We also have the technologies that can convert that into cost-effective power. And I've been staggered that over many years now we've just lost that opportunity or, as you say, just the penetration of solar is only 2%. Renewables is only 14.5 or 15% all up. That's wind, solar, geothermal, everything else. So it's a relatively low percentage. I mean, the renewable energy target for... 2020 is around 23% of power generation. It's still got a long way to go and only four years left. Most of that comes from the fact that Abbott tried to kill the industry and now they're playing catch-up. But the potential is enormous and, of course, the requirement is enormous. If we're serious about climate change, um, serious about the emissions reduction targets that we announced in Paris, which, in my view, about half what they should have been, should have been 50 to 60% rather than 24 to 20, 26 to 28%. But if you're serious about that, you need a mechanism by which you get there. And that transition from fossil fuel-based power, which is 85% of our power today, to renewables is a big transition. It's a great opportunity for this country. Uh, but we need a fair bit of leadership and, and so on. And the technical people that are here all yeah. running around on, on bits and pieces of how they might do that... But until the overall framework is set, we're not going to make it. Well, we can see that a boom in renewables is on in the world and maybe our government really isn't responsible for how this plays out here, but why are they blocking progress? Well, basically, um, I think Abbott thinks he won the election by opposing the carbon price and, uh, and um, you know, with a commitment to abolish most of the architecture around that, including the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Re- Renewable Energy Agency and so on. Um, I don't think they won the election on that issue. I think they won the election because people didn't like Rudd and Gillard and had enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's been a misconception all the way through. Um, Turnbull then uh, beats Abbott for the leadership on the commitment that he won't change Abbott's pretty anti-renewables policy. Um, But um, everyone knows that Malcolm, in a previous manifestation, was a very strong supporter of doing something substantive on climate change. So we are hoping that that changes after the election. Malcolm could say he has his own mandate and he actually puts it into place. But, look, there's an imperative that's a global imperative. All those commitments that were made by 197 countries, I think, in Paris, have all now got to make it happen. And even if we achieve the commitments that were made in Paris, we're still going to have 3.5 to 4-degree global warming, not zero net emissions by 2050. So there's a lot more to be done, and uh, you can't leave it to 2049 and try and do it. <laughs> you know, you're changing behaviour, you're changing industrial structures. Uh, if you recognise that, uh, you have something of a technological revolution and change. If we could move away from fossil fuel-based power to renewables, a fundamentally different country, fundamentally different... Um, um, uh, you know, industrial structure uh, and be much more cost effective and it would be a lot cleaner. We'd meet our environmental standards in a heartbeat. But, uh, you know, until we get that sense of urgency in government here and, and globally, we're not gonna, it's not going to happen. You're getting it a bit in China because the Chinese are driven by the short-term constraint of not being able to see down the road very far. You know, pollution is really bad. It has very, very significant health consequences. They have to do something about it. So, ironically, China's sort of leading this global debate, backed up by Obama and the US. The Europeans, of course, have been at it for quite some time, but a lot of you know, misfiring through that process. 
but uh, I think most uh, countries are recognising the, the inevitability of doing it and then, OK, to do that, work backwards and see what you actually have to do to make it happen. Well, financial analysts like Tim Buckley say, look, China's leading, we'll just have to follow, we'll be mm. dragged, kicking and screaming. But it seems to me there's an ideological obstacle, you know, in the thinking. Why would Abbott have led the Australian public to worry about, um, you know, renewable energy targets or... Well, I don't think uh, the public actually agrees with because we've got the energy. highest penetration penetration of solar panel, PV panels on roofs, household roofs in this country. That's right. And for a whole host of reasons people have made those decisions. Mm. If they could only get effective battery storage so they could actually power their home 24 hours a day mm. instead of just when the sun's shining, you know, because the rest of the time they buy it off the grid. They yeah. usually in peak hour pay a lot more. Uh, it's very expensive. I imagine they're all paying between 20 and 30 cents a kilowatt hour average price. And that is ridiculous when you can produce baseload solar at 8 to 10 cents a kilowatt hour uh, using, you know, Australian technology. So I just think that the revolution is sitting there to be had. Mm. Well, look, I know you're a financial expert and on the financial level we've seen some institutions divesting from fossil fuels. What effect is this having on the coal and gas exporters who are accelerating climate change? Is well, it causing them pain? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the requirements for zero net emissions by 2050, about 75% of known coal reserves can, can never be mined. And, um, you know, some of our big coal exporters are, are not focusing on the reality of that. They just dig and ship, and they dig as fast as they can and ship as fast as they can. And um, yet, you know, the world coal price has dropped dramatically. Uh, and even so, it's still above its long-term average. Uh, share prices of coal companies have fallen 80 or 90% in the last couple of years. I mean, coal has not been a good investment. Mm-hmm. You would have thought that over that period, these big institutional investors, superannuation, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds and so on, would have looked at coal and said, well, that's not a good investment. Tesla, which has gone from $20 to $260, looks like a pretty good investment, and a host of others. And that's the transition that some of them are making. Um, I do this uh, project called the Asset Owners Disclosure Project, where we survey, rate and rank the top 500 pension and super funds, insurers, uh, sovereign wealth funds, some endowment funds, um, on their management of climate risk, and just released our last survey, our most recent survey on May the 2nd, this was last Monday. And look, uh, over the years we've been doing, six or seven years, and about half the, uh, the number of those 500 are now conscious of climate risk and, and trying to start to do something about it. We've only got about 20, 29 that are rated A or above and about mm. a dozen that are rated triple A. But they're really working towards it. But the alarming thing is the other half, 49% of them, are really not doing anything at all about climate risk. And this, so they're putting all your superannuation money at risk mm. uh, of a global financial crisis that's induced by climate. And that's a realistic possibility. Do you know why? Is, that, is there an ideological reason there or are they just well, ignorant? A lot of the reason is just practically that A, they don't think it's going to happen on their watch. You know, the directors and, and trustees... Uh, past the management of the funds over to managers. Now, most of these managers are very short-term focused and they're remunerated on the basis of short-term performance, so they don't have an incentive to look at something that they might think is longer-term and structural. But those directors and trustees of those super funds have a fiduciary responsibility to manage those investment selves to maximise your return as an individual over your working life. So they're breaching their fiduciary responsibility if they they put at risk that money. Mm. And uh, I think most 
one of the most telling comments recently is Hank Paulson, who was Secretary of the US Treasury at the time of the global financial crisis, and that crisis was precipitated by subprime housing lending in the United States. He says that uh, the risk being run today of a financial crisis induced by climate dwarf the risks that were run in the subprime crisis. And now the Bank of England has picked it up, Mark Carney, uh, the uh, G20 Financial Stability Board, uh, they've set up a task force under Michael Bloomberg. So all the things we've been arguing about disclosure finally happening. Mm-hmm. And I think in the next uh, few years, you'll see a dramatic shift in favour of recognising the risk mm-hmm. and disclosing it and then managing it. Um, I guess if that doesn't happen, the central banks of the world or the monetary authorities of the world will probably start to demand mandatory disclosure, and that will make a big difference. Mm-hmm. So once you change the investment attitude, because one of the things we monitor is how much do they put into low-carbon intensive investments compared to high-carbon. Mm-hmm. So these institutions, on average, put over 50% of their money in climate-exposed investments and less than 2% in low carbon intensive industry so you know that doesn't make a lot of sense you're running a it's a 50 to 2 punt it must be dreadful for you because you've been in this for a long time when you were in parliament you were quite aware of all of this yeah i've been running a lot of these issues over you know since the early 90s late 80s early 90s and you know it is pretty frustrating and particularly i was annoyed when abbott came in and he took four main posts his, his, his uh, business advisor, Morris Newman, his head of his monetary uh, system review, David Murray, uh, Tony Shepard, the head of the Audit Commission, and Dick Warburton, the Renewable Energy Target Review, all climate deniers. Mm. You know, talk about stacking the deck. Well, that's what I mean, sensible, ideological. <laughs> sensible research and sensible... Yeah. It's not, I don't think it's ideological. I just think that, you know, they're doubters. Mm. Um, I don't know how they can deny it. I mean, the simplest, the initial recommendations of climate scientists going back, let's say, to the 1980s, was that you'll have more extreme weather events that occur with greater frequency and intensity. I don't even care who you are, that's happened. Yeah. Year in, year out, the cyclones are getting bigger and more frequent. That's the, look at Katrina and the damage it did in, in New Orleans. Look at Sandy going up further up the coast of the US. Mm. It's happening. Bushfires, whatever. They, you can't relate any one of those events to climate change, but mm. over time, it's exactly what they predicted would happen and the bottom line is the planet's warming and you're seeing the fallout of that in terms of the loss of species a lot of damage to the reef whatever way you want to measure it yeah well we can't despair we have to go on no no it's right on so the last thing is about two percent yeah that's just to me there's 98 percent for us to do the last last question is the election this year i'm going to vote for a party that doesn't give subsidies to coal oil and gas and doesn't receive donations from them either and do you think that's a good way to judge the parties? Well, I think that's what people are starting to do. I mean, I think if re- people realise that the, globally, I think the subsidy still for fossil fuels are about six to one against renewables. You know, that's, that's a disaster. And, and we're still getting new coal mines built when it's really, realistically they'll never be, you know, they'll be stranded assets, they'll never be commercially viable. Notice Adani's having real trouble in Queensland yeah. getting banks to lend the money. Our four won't, big four won't. 20-odd international banks said they won't fund it. It's probably not ever going to get off the ground, but uh, nor should it. I mean, we need to think about that. And I think a government policy that says, look, no more new coal mines. And look, there are technologies to refine coal where you can actually take the nasties out of it, burn it safely like gas, 40% less emissions, much lower cost. Why isn't the coal industry getting that technology and making it happen? It's been built in Australia. It's been demonstrated in Japan. I mean, but it sits on the shelf. 
you know, well, the money to be made there. Okay. Well, we were voted at the United Nations to be excluded from the High Ambition Club, and I think this uh, interview demonstrates why, but we need to uh, improve. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. You're listening to 3CR Radio. The next person I met was Fiona O'Hare. She's from the Green Bank and she's a leader in solar policy making. Fiona has received a great award recently, uh, the Hall of Fame for standing up for solar policy. Fiona, welcome very much to the Beyond Zero radio show. Can you tell us a little bit about your history? The caused them to give you that wonderful prize. Okay, my uh, my history is in electrical engineering in um, inverter manufacturing and then in 2003 I started to look at renewable energy certificates and started Green Bank in 2004 and we're now Australia's largest and respected uh, certificate creator for both uh, STC, small scale technology certificates, Victorian energy efficiency certificates, and also in the, in the carbon space for Australian carbon credit units. Great. Well, I can understand about renewable energy certificates that they're exchanged, but um, it isn't entirely satisfactory, is it? Um, if, if you go to the helicopter view, the Mr and Mrs Jones, when they install PV or solar water heating, is not contributing to greenhouse gas and therefore is not contributing to uh, climate change. So they're given these credits or they're entitled to create these credits because of that contribution to climate change. And so they assign the right to create the RECs to, to Green Bank and then Green Bank creates them in what's called the REC registry and then we pay Mr and Mrs Jones. OK, but the big polluters go on polluting. Yes, the big polluters go on polluting, but this is under the renewable energy target. The um, pollution that we were talking about for for the emission reduction fund falls into the pollution slash carbon space. Okay. Well, it's become very controversial, I think, in the last decade, climate change action and electricity policy. You would have think there'd be nothing so dull as electricity policy, but now it's become a really hot issue. And we've had so many changes that I believe industry is now quite put off from investing in renewables in Australia. How would it work if our government wasn't in the United Nations Club of low ambition on climate action? What would it be like if we fast-forwarded this and really got behind it? Um, Some of the speakers this morning were talking about how the electricity industry that we currently have was designed in 19... 20 or even even in 1910. So what the infrastructure and the way the NEM, the National Electricity Market, is set up currently doesn't suit the, the 20th century model where we have distributed generation and solar and all wind farms. Um, we have to rethink the NEM. Some listeners might not know what distributed energy is. Distributed energy means that... Uh, the owner of the system at 1 Maple Street, Wentworth, has solar on the roof, and then the lady at number 3 has solar on the roof, lady at number 5, and then so that what that is is distributed generation as against centralised um, generation of a coal-fired power station. Okay. So do you see a phase-out 
on the horizon of these old 19th century fossil fuel uh, power plants in Australia and an orderly transition towards the new renewable energy, distributed energy grid? Yes, I do. I, I think as long as we sit here down in Antipodes and pretend like the rest of the world hasn't moved on this, uh, we'll have our heads in, in, in the sand and we'll be left behind, both commercially and environmentally. Thank you very much for talking. I noticed there's a lot of men here. They're all very techie sort of men, geeky even, and not a mention of climate change. I'm very pleased to see a woman taking this leadership. Do you find that that is the way it is with climate action? There's a lot of women involved, really? I, I think women care more about the, the environment, particularly home-based environment, the pollution. Uh, we can't continue as a country to keep winning the Climate Talks Fossil Award. It's just not on. I'm at the Melbourne Solar Energy Conference and I've met Daniel Laws. He's the managing director and inventor of a new product called Power Diverter. Now listen carefully, listeners, and have your pencils ready at the end to copy down the details because this is something that's manufactured in England that's going to be available in Australia towards the end of the year. So welcome, Daniel. Hello there. Look, a lot of people at this solar energy conference are talking about battery storage. I think they're a bit dazzled by the Tesla, but that's very expensive right now. And you've come up with a new product which will be on sale soon. Tell us about it very clearly so listeners can visualise it. Okay, so... What we're we're talking about is um, something that everybody, most people have in Australia, and and that's the the hot water tank. So everybody's familiar with a hot water tank. Um, What most people don't realise is they can utilise that hot water tank as a storage device. They can store energy um, in in that tank. And we've come up with a device that helps you do that. So for PV owners, people that have solar panels on their roof, currently a lot of power that they're generating goes back to the grids. And studies back in the UK, back in the UK, roughly 70 percent of the power generated is, is exported now um, so we thought that was wrong we want we, people have invested a lot of money into um, these pv systems and so as the power is being generated they should utilize that power or at least store it for for, for later when they when they need it so um, it's a very simple concept it's a box that monitors the power usage within the home it knows how much power is being generated by the solar system and it detects when excess power is trying to go back to the grid and what it does is stops the power going back to the grid and diverts it into your hot water tank using your existing heating element and it will trickle charge and heat that water up to temperature every day to provide you hot water so therefore you maximize your power usage from your investment to give you the best return okay well um I like the story of how you came to this invention. Some people approached you about energy poverty. They joined together as a housing association and they, you know, they were struggling with their bills. So how, um, how, uh, how did you come up with a solution for them? Okay, uh, this was probably the most exciting part of the project um, to date, where you're dealing with uh, real-life situations, and um, to come out the end of it and realise that you've actually helped people, um, it's a fantastic feeling. So, absolutely right, we were developing this product, and um, housing associations, um, they were um, giving money by the government to put solar PV onto the poorest families, um, to help um, help them with, uh, with their energy bills, they had a bit more money in their pocket to improve their lifestyle 
themselves. Um, so they went and invested and they put all these solar panels onto all of these houses, which was absolutely fantastic. And everyone thought that they were going to get heavily reduced uh, electricity bills. But um, very soon after the installations were installed, people were still topping up their electricity with their key meters, etc., still spending very similar amounts of money as they were before, and it just didn't seem right. Um, and this is where they, they, they contacted us, uh, the, uh, the housing associations. They contacted us and said, look, we're not sure what to do here because we invested all this money. We want to help all these people, uh, but we're not quite sure how, what to do next. We know battery storage is there, but it's really expensive, so the grants don't quite cover it. But we've got some money in the pot to try to find solutions to, to help these people utilise more of the power. So that's where we stepped in. Uh, we installed quite a lot of these products into uh, people's homes. And uh, very soon after um, they were installed, um, they were uh, exporting a lot less, so they were using a lot more power. So they were used, um, only exporting between 30 and 50%, which was a massive difference. And in monetary terms, what that meant was uh, we were putting um, between £14 and £34 um, into their pockets every single month. Now, this is money these guys never had before. So um, it did two things. It gave people hot water every day, and it actually put some money in their pockets to improve their lifestyle. And that was something that we didn't expect. We, we wanted people to, uh, other people to say that our product worked. We we knew it did, but when, it, when we actually uh, we, we had that kind of feedback from these people, um, it just felt amazing. So that's where we realised that we were doing something really good, and we invested further into the products, and and uh, we are where we are today. Well, bringing it back to Australia, because you're going to be launching your product soon in Australia. Look, I was one of the early adopters of solar panels. I was very, I don't know what it was, probably climate change that got me going, and I got them. It was very expensive to install them, but eventually I started getting money back. Because because we had a feed-in tariff. But in New South Wales, at least, they're going to withdraw the feed-in tariff completely and all around the country. It's a bit messy. There are different tariffs, but it's not much now to encourage you to have power from solar energy. Um, I will be selling energy now to the grid for a few cents in the sunshiny period, and after sunset, after sunset, they will be selling it back to me at a much higher price. How would your system work for me? Pretend I'm a client, and uh, you know I have got a, a water tank. It's gas. Uh, it's connected to the gas at the moment, so I've got a hot water tank and I've got solar panels. How would it work? What would you install? Okay, so um, so you require an electrician to to install this, which should be done um, installed with an hour or two hours maximum um, you don't need a plumber so, so you're only dealing with one one trade which is great and um, that you have two units effectively it's a little sensor unit which goes into your electrical cupboards and that does all the sensing and works out how much power you're using and, and when excess excess power is available and the other unit is connected to your existing hot water tank and then when you switch this, the unit on it's all systems go so it's very simple sounds as if there's a lot more ambition in the UK to slow down climate change by getting fossil fuels out of electricity. I've heard of a lot of, you know, impulse between offshore wind, for example, and, you know, maybe it's a checkered thing, but could you tell me what help did you get with getting your storage idea up to a fully-fledged business manufacturing power diverter, so to the point now that you can export to Australia? 
Okay, well, there's, there's a number of things that the government have done to help us. There's Originally, when I had the idea, uh, we uh, we won a grant of, of only £4,000, which is about $8,000, um, which was supposed to be um, used in a university. So we had to go to a university. We chose University of Brighton, uh, got introduced to Dr. Simon Waters, um, who's the head of electronics in Brighton University. Uh, sat down around the table, had a cup of tea. It was a fantastic experience. And when I actually told him the idea, instead of writing notes down like normal people he was actually drawing an electronics diagram uh, actually creating my idea and putting it down with a smile on his face and he said I'd love to take this product on that was only supposed to pay for eight days of his time and he spent two months on it and uh, he came back and uh, we were delighted he was really happy and um, proved that the technology worked and at that point you know the as universities do they do their research and notice that this technology doesn't exist Um, so we were advised to get it patented which we did and we got it granted which is fantastic and um, I've put uh, Dr. Simon Waters down as one of the inventors on there to show his recognition because we we love working with that guy and he's uh, will always be remembered for that so that was good and then from that point um, we uh, we did the testing with the social housing and when we realised how powerful this thing could be and how disruptive the technology could be worldwide, uh, we said, right, let's put our hands in our pockets and, and invest in this. Um, the, the other things that um, the UK government had done, uh, the UKTI, UK Trade and Investment, um, it's all about exporting. We're manufacturing the product in the UK and we're exporting it out, so they really like us. And they've really helped us out. They've given us money to come to Australia before to um, go out and visit companies, get some research and understand exactly what this market requires from us we've done that and that's been hugely hugely helpful you know for startup businesses like we were it was at that time it was it was fantastic so there's a number of things that they've done so and it and and i'm now um because of the technology uh, that we've created um we're we were part now part of the knowledge transfer network so now i've become a leader with the solar special interest group and i'm part um advising government of what technology to take out of um the laboratories which will uh, effectively power our homes for over the next 35 years um, which, which is again great because the government um, are using people from the industry on the ground that have knowledge and that have a better understanding of what's going on and advising the government at which way we should go which is uh, fantastic and there are some unbelievable technologies coming out of the labs right now it's really good this is very valuable for us to hear this because I think people want to know the process especially the listeners to this pro- uh, program will you know, be pretty cluey about it and they'll want to know how you know nuts and bolts how do you do it look the last question is about the tesla let's come back to the tesla a lot of people are sort of holding out and waiting till it comes down in price to get one of these uh, battery batteries attached to their solar system and then they'll be off the grid is it since it's is it would it be sensible i think to get a, a power diverter one of your products first we think so <laughs> we um we think that the Tesla battery is actually a brilliant product. Uh, we love the fact that the way, the way you know, the great marketeers and getting everyone excited. And it's, uh, and it's really good because um, everyone's starting to really seriously think about battery storage. And you're right, at the moment, the price is high. And so the return investment and people are just waiting around, waiting for the price to come down. 
Our product is um, has a lot lower cost, but it's still storing energy in a thermal mass. Um, and everybody's got that battery in their home, or most people do, in their hot water tank. So it's a very low-cost solution to store energy. Um, so therefore, we do think that um, you know buying a powder first first is a is a great option. And, but it's also a great option for people that are thinking about battery storage as well, because it does work well, very well with batteries. And by bu- by putting a powder verta into your home, um, you'll be using um, a certain amount of, of of the spare electricity available to you, which means you don't necessarily have to buy such a large battery. So therefore, you'll be paying less for your battery, and your return on investment will be faster. So you've got a less uh, you know don't have to spend out so much money in the first place. So we do think it's a good idea, and I think it's the right order of, yes. in, in way you should. Okay, just for listeners who are interested and want to follow up, what's the website? Could you just say the name and uh, how they can contact you? Okay, yeah, please uh, visit us for more information. It's uh, powerdiverter.com.au. Thank you very much. So that was Daniel Laws, Managing Director and Inventor of Power Diverter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You are listening to the Beyond Zero Emission Show on Radio 3CR. Now let's get back to the solar conference. Vivian is talking to John Grimes and Wayne Smith from the Australian Solar Council. In part one, we heard John Hewson say he was waiting for the real Malcolm to stand up, to bring in the climate policies we need. Vivian finishes by asking Christine Milne about the real Malcolm, and she talks about what a tragedy it is for the community and the climate that he hasn't stepped up. Um, John Grimes is the Chief Executive of the Australian Solar Council. He's been in the Air Force and is respected by many in the climate action community as a strategic fighter. So welcome, John. There are hundreds of people here who supply solar power and battery storage. They are a political force to be reckoned with, and Christine Milne told them this morning to get behind the Australian Solar Council's campaign that they will run in marginal electorates. Welcome, John, and would you tell us about this campaign? So it actually is its a flow-on from the Save Solar campaign that we've been running for the last couple of years around the country. We're targeting marginal seats where the government really needs to do everything to hold those seats and we're taking a simple message to the electorate. We're asking the electorate to vote to save money, vote to save solar. That will be our strategy again in this federal election campaign. It was devastating in its effect in Queensland and actually resulted in a majority Labor government. So I think again we can actually 
turn particularly soft conservative voters and, and get them to focus on the fact that the government has not focused on them and their power bills, but is more interested in protecting the vested interests of the big power companies. Okay, well, I attended several uh, events in your previous campaign to preserve the RET, and it was like a military campaign, spotting the weak spots, with usually an empty chair on stage, dramatising the fact that the local MP wasn't there. He hadn't accepted your invitation, I suppose. What are the weak spots in this 2016 federal election? I think that there will be uh, coalition members that are going back to their electorates, and the electorate should vote, should, should, should judge them on their record. See, these people voted to slash the renewable energy target. They voted to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They voted to abolish the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. In fact, if we hadn't put up such a strong campaign, the, the small-scale renewable energy target would have been closed. So, so we need to let people know they can be in no doubt of the agenda of a Liberal national government if it's returned, and if it has a, the balance of power or has power in the Senate, then be under no illusions about what the agenda is. We, we could not have been seen that more clearly than what we've seen over the last couple of years. Don't be complacent. If you want a different outcome, you've got to act to make it so. Yes. Well, um, well I'd like to ask you now about ARENA. This is a um, grant-giving body that was set up in the Gillard era and it, it's the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is one part of it and then there's ARENA is the other agency and they've taken a billion dollars out of it and uh, they haven't abolished it as they wanted to do but it's still there but it's been gutted. Mark Butler, uh, the Shadow Minister for, the, uh, for Climate Change, said yesterday that the industry, the solar industry and the wind industry could have made more fuss when that billion dollars was withdrawn. What's your response to that? Well at uh, 6.45 the morning after that that announcement was made, I was on ABC Radio National and I didn't stop doing press from, from coast to coast for the entire day and actually beyond. Uh, we were very vocal in saying that it was unacceptable that the government remove this $1.3 billion. But I say, Vivian, that that is also unacceptable that a shortened government has committed to accepting that cut. Right? This is a litmus test for the Labor Party. You see, we stand up for good solar policy. We don't stand beside political parties. We'll support our our friends, right, and call out those that are against us. But ultimately, the, 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 the Labor Party has to understand it can't just get by on the rhetoric, right? The substance matters, and you can't campaign for, 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 for renewables and then cut, cut the legs out of the innovation, the research and development that will deliver the clean energy solutions of the future. So that, listeners, is what ARENA is about, the research. There are plenty of roadblocks between us and the transition to a clean energy future, which, for our our listeners, it's the climate change that we're so really terrified and the scientists are telling us every day. We did a program on Antarctica, for example, CSIR scientists being slashed as well. But they're the ones who are crying what's happening. The renewable energy is a big part of the way to stop it or to slow it. But there's a schizophrenic policy of subsidies in our government and the um, opposition who they talk about uh, coal and gas as their friends. They keep approving new mines uh, and uh, giving them subsidies at the same time as talking big about renewables. It seems to be that's the biggest roadblock and it's damaging to business confidence. As you've just said, the last three years, partly all of that rhetoric... But it's reckless, even criminal, in terms of the emissions reductions we've signed up for in Paris. I think this is becoming illegal, really, governments leading in this way. What do you have to say to voters who might be listening in? The future is not inevitable. 
ultimately, ultimately we will prevail, right? Because it just means it, the history is on our side. But but how how long it takes, how that transaction occurs, is absolutely not inevitable. So just because it, it's evident to all of us, right, that that's what we have to do, it doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. We have to fight for this. We have to get organised. We have to take action. We have to actually push this change through. And if the politicians won't lead the change, then they better get out of the way because the people will lead the change. The, the industry will lead the change. So I'm optimistic long term, but I'm a realist short term. And that means take action, don't be complacent, shoulders to the grindstone, we've got work to do. Yes, and there's plenty of campaigns you can join up with listeners that in leading up to the election, a lot of people are getting on board with this. But when we're in the room on the day of the election, what should we have uppermost? You need to vote for people who have good, you know, renewable energy policies, who, who understand renewable energy uh, is about competition, it's about, um, uh, it's about uh, lower electricity prices, job creation, investment, regional development. So there are fantastic community, environmental, you know, economic benefits. And as, as a footnote, we're going to save the planet at the same time. So isn't that a lovely place to be? Let's argue hard for that. And uh, with, on that type of agenda, we can't lose. So that was John Grimes, as you can see, a real fighter. Uh, he's the head of the Australian Solar Council. Christine Milne has agreed to speak to me. She gave a resounding talk this morning. Everyone was whispering to me, I should ask Christine about it. But first, Christine, I'd like to just um, ask you just about John Kay. I saw a tweet from you about how you said John Kay was a real gentleman. He shared his umbrella with me in many a storm. Just say a few words about John Well, John gave his life to public service. Essentially, he absolutely believed in the Greens and what we stand for, and he was a fierce advocate for everything green. He worked so hard with local communities in New South Wales against coal and coal seam gas. Uh, Some very memorable moments up the Hunter Valley with John up there campaigning very hard. He was also a big uh, advocate for public education, for TAFE in particular, Um, He was a great Green Member of Parliament and it's just tragic that uh, cancer has beaten him. But he leaves a great legacy. And um, I think Greens everywhere are really proud of the fact that uh, John took to heart the principles of the Greens especially in relation to climate change and renewable energy, and you couldn't have got a stronger advocate for a 100% renewable future. Yes, I, I feel that. I feel we're in this huge battle about the transition to renewable energy. We know the big existential climate change crisis, which he knew, and I'm sorry that he's sort of missing in the battle now. But anyway, Christine, would you tell us what you said to the um, Australian solar energy audience here today? Well, I was asked to speak about solar in an election year and I really wanted to come to do that because I think that uh, Liberal and Labor will try to bury climate as an issue in this year's federal election. Uh, I say that because, uh, well, the government's record is appalling and has tried to tear down everything from the Renewable Energy Target to the Renewable Energy Agency, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, you name it. They want to gut it. They have they've taken money out of the Bureau of Meteorology, out of CSIRO. Uh, it's just... You've never seen such an assault on good policy as they have conducted. But having said that, 
Labor's problem is that it continues to support coal and gas. It supports Carmichael. And so any elevation of climate in the national debate means that people will start asking them questions about their commitment to fossil fuels. And whilst they do want to phase out of coal-fired power stations, they're not saying anything about export coal. And in the last 24 hours, um, Mark Butler has come out and said that Labor will gut ARENA, just exactly the same as the government. Labor will take a billion dollars out of ARENA. Well, that is completely unsatisfactory. And so I said to the Solar Council audience today that they need to make it an issue. They need to say that in every marginal seat... They make it an issue by saying that we will not support any candidate who will take money out of ARENA, who will not support that um, agency. And so that's really the challenge. And also, of course, I said that, you know, we should be moving to 100% renewable energy as quickly as possible and that the best-case scenario would be a minority government with Greens in balance of power in both the House of Reps and the Senate because it was the Greens in balance of power who drove getting established in the first place ARENA, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Climate Change Authority. It was the Greens who got AEMO to do the 100% renewable energy modelling. The Greens will drive a government to much better policy outcomes. So that was essentially my message today. So the government we elect in July 2016 is the government who will oversee Australia's engagement with the Paris Agreement. And that is a really big thing because this we're talking decarbonisation post-2050. We're talking about a serious shift to renewables and there is no suggestion at all that the government's doing anything about that and Labor talking about its 2020 target, all that just goes out the window. Paris is ratified, you're getting getting serious. The other thing, I, another point I made is I'm just fed up with Glenn Stevens, uh, Reserve Bank and others just lamenting what they say is a failure uh, to have any drivers uh, of growth. And he said recently, in the absence of new drivers of demand, the world may need to collectively face up to the possibility that global growth trends may have been permanently lowered since 2008 crisis. And what I find extraordinary is that he says, in the absence of drivers of demand, what does he think the Paris Agreement is? It is the biggest driver of demand for renewable energy technology, for all the jobs, for the innovation, for the redesign of cities, for energy efficient buildings, for green space. Like, you know, it is the most, it is huge. It's, in my view, it is the equivalent of Kennedy's Man on the Moon mission. We're going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. Well, the Paris Agreement is the same sort of driver of demand for ecological sustainability, transition to 100% renewables and action on climate. So that is where we have to get some real uh, shifts. And I've just encouraged people to join the Solar Council, to donate to the Solar Council and to run community forums in the 20 marginal seats that will win or lose the election for both the government and Labor 
and to basically get the sitting member and the Greens and the Labor candidate and any other candidates up there and just get them to answer yes or no. Will you uh, support legislation that takes a billion dollars out of arena? Yes or no. Will you support an environmental objective going into the national electricity market? Yes or no. Will you support 100% renewable energy or what will you support? Do you support Carmichael? Yes or no? They are the key questions. 350.org's got one. Do you take donations and will you give subsidies to fossil fuels? And that's a per- that's a wonderful question to ask because in the budget, as we saw, not a single mention of climate change. Every fossil fuel subsidy left in place. And I, I just want to send a shout out and congratulations to all those people in Australia and but around the world um, involved in the break free uh, from fossil fuels campaign. It's fantastic. I saw the kick off. Um, um, only through social media, I find out. I saw the kickoff in the UK and the uh, the coal mines, and again, here's the government moving to try to stop environment groups get involved in advocacy in Australia, let alone the non-violent direct action that people have been taking to take over coal mines and other uh, facilities. That is the future. The reality is divestment. Coal and gas are gone. It is last century. Now, they can either try and prop them up and arrest the whole population or uh, they can get with the future. But I want to just say thank you to those young people and I believe Newcastle is going to be terrific. Well, I think a lot of people have learned through this movement that we can participate in democracy. It is participatory democracy rather than just voting and then going back to sleep for three years. We can participate all along the way, so none of us are going to be put off by whatever the election outcome is. But at the top of this program, I interviewed John Hewson and he did start with climate change and he is an advocate for diversity but he's a Liberal. And I said to him, well, you know, uh, about Malcolm Turnbull, he said, look, I'm just waiting for the real Malcolm Turnbull to come out. And I said, look, I don't think that's right. I don't think that'll happen. And I think there's some sort of terrible ideology. Well, you know, I think of it as neoliberalism. Dominate. He said, no, it's not ideology. Well, I'd like you to talk about that. And in terms of something that the China state grid chairman said, which was the only hurdle to overcome is mindset. There is no technical challenge at all. And this mindset, you've worked in hundreds of committees about the NEM and all of that and everything's so complicated. But what is the mindset, like the ideology, the thinking process that we need to get or governments need to get, especially Australian government? It's follow the money. It's as simple as that. Uh, The mindset we are talking about is those people who make mega donations, the oil, gas and coal industry make huge donations to the Liberal Party and the country party, sorry, the National Party and uh, other political parties and they get results. They get the subsidies, they get the uh, approvals, they get the frustration of all the new ways of thinking and technology. It is absolutely a mindset and as to climate denial you know the science is clear every day it is made worse just at the moment the most horrendous fires in Canada in the boreal forests horrendous fires and we're seeing that drought in India, the most extreme drought in India, and I've just come back from Fiji where you're still trying to clean up after Cyclone Winston every single day, whether it's Arctic melt, glacier melt, Antarctic ice shelves uh, shelves melting, Greenland 
it doesn't matter where you look, it is happening. You cannot deny it. And so you can only... I mean, Al Gore made the point in The Inconvenient Truth, and it's as true today as it was when that first came out, you know, if you are paid to promote these industries, it's pretty hard to get people change, to change their mind. And that's where the Tea Party in the Liberal Party is coming from, and that's why I fundamentally disagree with uh, John Hewson. I have enormous respect for what he's doing in terms of promoting... Cl- action on climate and I think it's terrific and I'm a patron of the Solar Council with John. I think he does a good job in promoting climate. But I think he's wrong about Malcolm. Um, Malcolm knew when he took on the leadership that in order to get it he had to agree with what the Tea Party end of the Liberals want, and that is no action on climate, no carbon pricing, tear down renewable energy, promote coal and gas, and that is precisely what he agreed to, as indeed he agreed to the plebiscite on marriage equality and a whole lot of other things that we probably don't even know about that he's promised them. Um, There's the deal with, for example, Leyenhelm to to have the Adler gun uh, be available in Australia, That's for right. example. Yeah. And, you know, so all of these deals that have been done, if Turnbull wins the election and he tries to change policy, they'll get rid of him. Mm. It's as simple as that. He is there at the behest of Erica Betts, of Andrews, uh, you know, of the right wing of the Liberal Party, and he is only on a leash as far as they allow him to go. So it's no good. And the tragedy for Malcolm is that people believed he would be better than that, but he's not. He wanted to be Prime Minister, he's paid the price, and the community is now paying the price in terms of climate denial, in terms of holding up marriage equality and so many other things. And so nobody should give him the benefit of the doubt. That is over. And to me, the line in the sand was safe schools. He hadn't made that deal with the right-wingers. That was after he became Prime Minister, and yet when they put pressure on him to get rid of Safe Schools program, he caved into them. And that tells you all you need to know about who is the power base in the Liberal Party. Okay. Thank you very much. We're talking to Christine Milne, um, and she's at the Melbourne uh, Solar Energy Conference. Christine, what's your title now? You're not leader of the Greens at the moment. What, <laughs> what are you, part of the International Greens? I know, what's your description now? Uh, many and varied. <laughs> A rat bag, campaigner. Um, <laughs> no, um, well, I've taken on a number of honorary roles since um, I, st- I resigned from the Senate and stepped down as leader of the Greens. So um, I've taken on the ambassador's job for the Global Greens, so I'm promoting Green parties around the world. But apart from that, I've agreed to be an ambassador for the 100% Renewable Energy Campaign of the World Future Council, which is based in Hamburg. I'm also, I've gone on to um, the board of a very small, um, poor end in the United States called Climate Accountability and they're working with the Union of Concerned Scientists and the International Environmental Law mm-hmm. Association to bring various cases, um, which is very exciting work. And, of course, patron of the Solar Council and uh, various other things. But I'm f- trying to find myself a role in the region, in the, the Asia-Pacific, in promoting renewables and acting on climate change. And I'm talking to various people about 
about that. Thank you very much. It's very nice to talk to you. Thank you. I'm at the Solar Energy Conference in Melbourne and I've invited Wayne Smith to say again his tribute to John Kay who died the other day and we're very sad about him. I'm very sad about his death because he was such a great friend to this radio program, always gave fabulous interviews across all the information and so positive about the renewable energy transition that we've just got to make in terms of climate change. So um, Wayne, could you just say again from the point of view of the Australian Solar Council you, you know, your feelings about John? Yeah, well John Kay was a New South Wales Greens MP. He was a great friend of the Australian Solar Council. He was a great friend of solar industry actually and he was a very strong supporter of good solar policy and a very strong supporter of the Save Solar campaign. Uh, John Kay was actually instrumental in stopping the uh, federal government's plans to retrospectively slash the feed-in tariff. Uh, that was a huge political issue in New South Wales and he stopped that from happening and that was an enormous benefit for the Australian solar industry and really the solar industry owes him an enormous uh, debt of gratitude. What, what are your memories of him? Oh, look, we had a whole bunch of meetings with him and engagement with him. We actually had a rally in Sydney around the uh, opposing the retrospective cuts to the solar feed-in tariff, and John Kay gave a very passionate speech to that rally. About 4,000, 5,000 people at that rally. And it was like, this wasn't a standard, typical rally. This was like mums and dads and just people who got solar on their roof who just could not believe that a government would want to rip up their contract. And... And John spoke passionately, enthusiastically, and really understood the concerns of ordinary Australians. I knew he was an engineer, but I only learned after his death that he was an electrical engineer and very, um, you know, he'd been a professor of that. Um, he would love to be at this conference. Yeah, he would. He would absolutely love that. And, and, and John was an enormously smart guy, and he knew his stuff. And, you know, it's hard meeting with people who know their stuff because, you know, they know when you, you don't know your stuff. And there were more than a few occasions when John knew a hell of a lot more than me. Thank you very much. That was Wayne Smith. Thanks to all our guests from the Solar Forum and to the radio team this week. My name is Andy Britt, and I'd just like to give you a heads up on a forum on Thursday the 16th of June. It's called Coral, Coal and Climate Change, and it's at the Box Hill Town Hall at 6.30. That's Thursday the 16th of June. Candidates Mark Butler for the ALP, Janet Rice for the Greens, and Josh Frydenberg for the Coalition will be there. For more information, call 0409 179 817. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. Next week is Radio Fun and we invite you to call us during the show to send us a donation to keep 3CR on the air. Now, stay tuned to Save Albert Park. I'm going to leave you with one of Jane's favourite jingles who's sick in bed at the moment, the activist jingle. Good night and thank you for listening. <laughs>